Hello and welcome to the Erwin Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with legal and financial news that matter to you. My name is Anya Bean and I'll be in the hot seat today. I'm a senior associate in the medical negligence team at Erwin Mitchell and one of my particular areas of expertise is claims involving delays in diagnosis and treatment of meningitis. I had the pleasure of representing my client Abigail and her family in respect of her little boys Ollie and her own legal claims one of the most tragic cases I have dealt with in my career. I am very grateful to Abigail for agreeing to share her story with us today. Hi, Anya. Thanks for having me. Um, We're also joined by Mark Jeffries from Meningitis Now, a charity dedicated to fighting meningitis in the UK. Thank you for joining us today, Mark. Hi, Anya. Delighted to be here. I'm delighted to welcome you both to the podcast. Abigail, could we please start by you sharing Oliver's story with us? Ollie was the most precious and laid back little boy. Uh, He was our third child, so we kind of thought we knew what we were doing and we thought we'd hit the jackpot when we got Ollie because he was um, just the most undemanding child who fitted into our busy life as a family. Um, And when he was seven months old, he developed a temperature one night. Um, We gave him Capole, as most parents do, and he immediately threw that back up again. but we calmed him down anyway. He went back to bed and um, he had a bit of an unsettled night, but really he was OK. Um, the next day he didn't have a temperature, but he uh, was a little off colour. I guess he just wasn't his normal self, a little more unsettled than he might normally be. Not eating his um, food as he would normally um, and definitely not drinking as much milk as he might normally have done. Um, and again, that night when he was um, put to bed, just um not not well and a bit unsettled again um and his temperature rose again and again I tried to give him cow pole and again uh he was sick at that point so um I started to get a bit worried about that because we then had 24 hours of him not being so well um and I was just aware that he had had reduced fluids and now he had a temperature and that was something that I I didn't really want to continue So my husband was out that night, actually, but I was sufficiently concerned that I wanted to take Ollie somewhere. It was about nine o'clock at night at that point. And we went to our local A&E department and I got the neighbour to come in and look after our four year old twins at that time. So I could go um, with Ollie to the hospital. And uh, we waited for what seemed like an age at the hospital to be seen. Um, But eventually we were seen. It was it was very busy in the emergency department that night. Um, there were quite a few children in and uh, but we were seen and we were discharged after about four hours um, with a diagnosis that Ollie had a viral infection and we were given some paracetamol for him and essentially told to to go home, keep giving him paracetamol because it was really important that his temperature stayed down and to make sure that he drank a lot of fluids. And um, so we did that, we came home, it was about two o'clock in the morning by the time I got home from that and um, the next morning I was due out actually on a girl's shopping trip uh, and I went in to see Ollie before I left he was still sleeping and um, I thought it was a bit unusual he was still sleeping but we'd had a really long night the night before so I just thought okay you're really really tired but I felt his head he didn't have a temperature and so off I went on my girl shopping trip and I spoke to Tom a little bit that morning um, and he said Ollie is still a bit sleepy but you know he's okay he's not crying um, 
but that was Ollie. He he was a baby that didn't really cry or make a fuss, as I've said. Uh, so we weren't that concerned. Um, I got back about lunchtime and my husband, Tom, was having a cuddle with Ollie. And the first thing that I noticed was Ollie's colour. Um, he had a very, very pale to look at, almost a kind of a, a jaundiced colour to him. But he was very settled, just very sleepy. Um, and Tom and I did, we did have a discussion. Do we, you know, should we take him back to A&E for them to have a look at? And together we kind of really rationalised our fears around that in that we'd seen a doctor less than 12 hours previously. He'd had a diagnosis of a viral infection and we were doing everything they had told us to do, which was to keep his temperature down and he didn't have one and to keep his fluids up. And we were doing that and Ollie was taking all of his bottles as he should have. And so, as I said, we we kind of talked ourselves out of it and said, no, 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 he's fine. As the afternoon went on, um, my father, in fact, came to see us. He's a retired GP and he noticed that Ollie's breathing was a little bit faster than he might have imagined. And he then felt Ollie's um, head and his fontanelle and said to him that um, as a doctor, he felt that his fontanelle was a little bit raised. And it was at that point that alarm bells started to ring for us. Um, it's the classic you hear of your fontanelle is raised and you do think meningitis. And Tom, um, I immediately went to the hospital again with Ollie and Tom stayed at home with my dad to look after the children. But again, um, I was thinking meningitis, but again, rationalising my thought process as we went on that we had seen a doctor, we had been assured, we had done all the right things as parents in taking him to hospital the night before. Um, we got, I got to hospital and gave the symptoms to the receptionist. And um, when I, as soon as I said, he's just really sleepy, we brought him in yesterday, we can't... Um, he's just very calm, but he's just not right. He's not himself. Even with that scant information, she immediately uh, put out what I now know to be a paediatric resus call. And we were immediately ushered into the resuscitation area within the ED department. And suddenly about 10 people surrounded Ollie, he was taken out of his car seat and put on um, an adult trolley in which he just looked tiny on age seven months. and. Um, it was immediately very obvious that my worst fears were coming to fruition and that he was a very, very uh, ill little boy. Um, and the doctors were really good. They spoke to us a lot and said, um, he, he is really ill. We are treating this as meningitis, but we do not know what it is. Anyway, um, eventually it became apparent that the hospital didn't have the facilities that they needed to treat Ollie and um, he was transported to the Evelina hospital in London um, and it was brilliant they turned up to collect him and it was like the A-team had arrived suddenly the, the care that they gave was just outstanding and Tom and I went with Ollie to the Evelina something we'll just be forever grateful for that we could stay in the ambulance with him on that trip uh, he was ventilated by that stage and uh, we had quite an uneventful journey to Evelina, but we were um, blue lighted there and um, Ollie was very, um, it, although he was obviously in a critical condition, he was very stable at that point and uh, it was in the middle of the night and um, we were told, look, you know, don't worry, we've got him now under control and we'll see what the next few days brings. Um, 
And the next day was a roller coaster as Ollie kind of perked up and then deteriorated and perked up and deteriorated. But essentially, he never regained consciousness. Um, and um, about, gosh, less than 24 hours after we had been there, uh, he really deteriorated very, very badly. And um, we were told that he had severe hypoxic brain injury. And um, that actually the only thing that was keeping him alive at that point was the machinery that he was connected to. And we made the decisions as parents then. It was very clear that the Ollie that we knew had already gone. Um, and we made the decision at that point to turn off his life support. Um, and we returned home to see our four-year-old twins as a fundamentally different family. Thank you so much, Abigail, for sharing the story so bravely. Um, I know that it was a, a inc incredibly difficult and distressing time for you as a family, not only because of what happened to Ollie, but also what happened afterwards in relation to getting the information um, from the hospital trust that initially saw you on that first evening in accident emergency unit. So we first met in the summer of 2014, so just a few months after Ollie's death. Um, and I know that when you sought legal support, this was never about financial settlement for you. Um, what was it that made you con contact solicitors? We had worked with the hospital to try and ascertain what had gone wrong that night. Um, all we had left was to try and work out the facts of the situation, to really work out what had happened to Ollie and um, and how could we then play our part in making sure it didn't happen to any other families? Um, and we really um, struggled with some of the communication that we got back from the hospital. And um, I'm an NHS manager by trade and I know how the system works. And even though I know how the system works, I was still struggling to get the information out of the hospital that I felt was really important. And, and that's why we felt it really important to bring in um, a legal team to support us in order that we could have the right questions um, answered for us. And um, we all, it was also very clear that we were going to go through an inquest process and we wanted to be really supported as we went through an inquest process. I don't think many people go through that in their lives. There's nobody you can really reach out to and talk to and say, how does it work? What do we do? Um, and we really, really needed help. And when we met you, Anya, and I remember you coming round to the house and sitting on our sofa. Um, and actually that just, it was a, a weight kind of lifted off our shoulders that there was somebody there to guide us through that process. Um, and I remember you approaching it with this very kind of calm, it, it was in control, you were in control of it and you were very factual, but you had this lovely kind of emotional support that came with that as well. And we really needed those two things in balance with each other. So it was it was greatly appreciated. Thank you. That's that's very kind of you to say. Um, the, the inquest took place, as you said, the inquest took place uh, in March 2015, so nearly um, a year after Ollie's death. Um, how did you find the process of the inquest itself and the coroner's findings? Incredibly difficult is probably the answer to that. Um, I think I was taken aback by quite how formal the process was. And I, I'm not sure why I was taken aback by that, because, of course, it's a formal process and actually we want it to be a formal process because it should be very much professionally run. Um, there was an awful lot of 
of homework that we put into it ahead of time. And I'm really grateful for the time I had to do that. Um, we obviously were represented by a barrister there, um, of which um, you know you helped source for us, which again was massively appreciated. Um, but actually, it, it was a helpful process in that the questions that we never really got out of the um, trust complaint process, people now had to answer. And we were allowed to question some of the things that we felt we hadn't been able to question before. Um, and actually, as parents, we felt listened to. And as parents, we felt vindicated and that we weren't going mad. And that the things that we felt had been problematic, actually, an outsider, somebody completely independent, was also saying things went wrong and there was a missed opportunity that might have made a difference in Ollie's life. and. Um, the learning then that came from that and the actions that were then put in place by the trust, uh, then I think we felt, OK, we've done our job now as parents and Ollie's done his job in that we will now actively make a difference to um, other people. What, what struck me um, in terms of the coroner's findings was that she highlighted um, that during the night in question there was little emphasis on why a mother has taken her child to hospital at that time of night. And I think certainly in my line of work we often see that parental concern isn't taken seriously enough by the treating doctors and it's ultimately the parents who know the child best. Um, but in, in terms of you mentioned the trust making changes following the inquest process and also settlement of both your and Ollie's claims. Um, I know that you, what you wanted to achieve from the process was to make sure that this doesn't happen to other families in the future. Um, what kind of changes did they make to, to their own setup? So they made um, a number of changes. They um, started to recruit some more uh, paediatric clinicians. So the night Ollie was seen, he wasn't seen by a paediatric doctor. He wasn't seen by a paediatric nurse. Um, and therefore, the trust put in place, um, they in fact appointed eight additional consultant paediatricians and they recruited more paediatric nurses as well, which would make a fundamental difference to the staffing um, of the emergency department, but also the training of doctors and the wider teams working in those areas as well. Uh, they also made changes to the forms that were used. Uh, so when Ollie's things like his heart rate and his blood pressure were recorded, um, some of those things didn't flag as being serious enough. So they made changes to the way that those uh, forms were used. And they um, also made a change where if patients were being discharged from the emergency department late at night, they now have to be seen by a paediatric doctor. Um, and so that's for me is a really fundamental change, which, uh, you know, I feel actually really quite proud to have been a part of that change. And so you should. And, and I know that um, in the response, the, the formal response to the legal claim that the trust submitted um, following the inquest and following the legal action, um, they did say that Ollie should have been provided with antibiotic treatment and, and not discharged from hospital. Um, and, and again, I imagine that this will have made you feel justified in, in pursuing the legal claim, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you talk a bit more about that. I think... The fact that we knew and there had been um, 
clarity and an independent assessment that more could have been done and that antibiotics should have been given at an earlier stage meant that I felt comfortable, more comfortable at that point about uh, pursuing um, a legal claim. And for us, again, it's not about the money. Of course, it's not about the money. It doesn't matter how much money you're going to give me. You can never give me what I actually want, which is I want Ollie back. And um, we're never going to get that. But what I did get was the ability to not have to worry about going back to work. Um, and I think I ended up having um, at least three years with not having to go back to work, which meant that um, I was given one of the best gifts after Ollie, which was more time with my family. The twins were four at the time and just starting school. I was able to support them through that process and through their entire um, time of being at infant school. And uh, Tom and I went on to have a little girl, Harriet, and I therefore had loads of time with her as well. Um, and I will be forever grateful that, that that is something that going through this process meant I could do. Um, I think the biggest thing for me is I needed time to grieve and going through the legal process gave me that time. I didn't want to be OK after Ollie died and it meant I didn't have to be OK. And I think that's probably one of the most important things that that therefore gave me um, was was time in my own time to find myself again, to enjoy being a mum to my to my other children and to kind of be there for my family. Thank you. Um, it, it is something that we say to the families who contact us is that nothing can ever turn back the clock. Um, and we appreciate that as lawyers, but just hearing about how you managed to use the legal process to achieve what you wanted and to have the time with your family is, is brilliant to hear. Um, and most of our clients do not pursue this route for financial settlement. They seek answers and they want to grieve. And I'm just pleased that you're able to do that in your own time. Um, Mark, Ollie's story is one which the charity Meningitis Now work incredibly hard to avoid. Um, through, amongst others, raising awareness of the disease and its symptoms. Um, can you tell us a bit more about Meningitis Now's mission? I mean, Meningitis Now, we were uh, established in, in 1986 by a, a group of, of parents uh, impacted by the disease here in Gloucestershire. Um, and back then, there were no, no vaccines existed. There was no fight against meningitis. Um, and in the 36, 37 years since, we've uh, fundraised, we've raised, uh, invested over 12 and a half million into vaccine research, the development of vaccines. There are now five available on the NHS. And cases of meningitis have been slowly declining uh, in that time. But when, as we've, we've heard so powerfully in, in this uh, podcast, when meningitis does uh, strike it's an acute infectious disease and the after effects um are profound and lifelong um and and of course bereavement as well is is profound and lifelong and so our support services have become uh, increasingly prevalent we've uh, we operate across the uk we are uk focused um uh, there, there's a global meningitis movement of which we support and 
um, and a part of, of course. But um, so, yes, we have community support officers. We have trained qualified nurses within our support team. Um, and as Abigail describes, you know, life after meningitis experience isn't linear. And so we work very closely with with everyone, hundreds of families each year um, to to help them in that uh, experience after meningitis. Um, and absolutely, awareness raising is is, is a key uh, strand to our work because um, meningitis is fast acting. Uh, it's so important that initial medical intervention um, is equally as fast acting. And so knowing the signs and symptoms of meningitis and having awareness of the vaccines available uh, is is key, is absolutely key to all of our work. Abigail and her husband Tom have supported meningitis now with various fundraising activities over the years. Um, okay. Abigail, how have you and the charity worked together? I saw bereavement counsellor after Ollie died and one of the things she recommended was, um, you know, find something that you can do, you're physically you need to do something and kind of Tom really seized on that idea and off he went running and that became his kind of let out, off he went and pounded the streets and then we thought, okay, well, let's take advantage of that because he quite frankly was out of the house quite a lot so I needed it to be for some value and um, so we linked in with Meningitis Now and started raising money for them so Tom has run uh, quite a few marathons he's done a lot of bike rides we've done family mud runs um, and all of that has contributed to Meningitis Now and we've really got something out of that as a family because it gives us an opportunity to talk about Ollie it gives us an opportunity to keep him alive in our hearts. Um, and it just means that if we can continue to get the message out about meningitis and the devastating impact it has, but equally the fact that it is entirely preventable, um, then that's what we really, really want to strive to do. Um, and then just most recently last year, we also fronted as a family the Ribbon Appeal campaign for meningitis now. Um, and that meant, again, a further opportunity to talk about Ollie and to raise awareness and to be part of kind of Christmas celebrations as well. Mark has talked a little bit about the investment that Meningitis Now has managed to source into um, the vaccines that are now available on the NHS that protect people against some strains of meningitis. Um, Abigail, would Ollie have benefited from any of the current vaccines? So no, he wouldn't. Um, he died from a strain of pneumococcal meningitis that uh, currently babies aren't vaccinated against. Um, and I guess that's why we spend a lot of time raising the awareness that we do around meningitis, because um, actually the vaccines have been really successful. And as Marcus said, the numbers have reduced. But that means actually clinicians rarely see cases of meningitis nowadays and it's really hard for them to spot it and that's where our job comes in as parents and families that we need to be vigilant and to look for the signs and symptoms of meningitis ourselves and actually we need to um, push that's what we've really learned is if you as a parent or a family member feel that something isn't right then even if you have received assurance, if you are still thinking something is not right about this, you know your child or your family member better than anybody else. And you need to keep asking for help until you get the help that you need. 
we know that um, the vac vaccinations currently available do not protect against every strain of meningitis, and this is why um, the raising awareness is so important. Uh, Mark, are there any other common misconceptions about the disease, its symptoms, who it can affect, um, that the charity are particularly keen to, to spread the message about? So common misconceptions about meningitis. Well, firstly, that it's babies and toddlers are the, the most at-risk group of meningitis, but anyone at any age can be affected. So it's really important to understand your vaccine status. Babies and toddlers are at, at high risk of meningitis, but also, again, in teens, when the bacteria in the back of your throat becomes increased and, and social mixing, especially when people go off to university, that's another uh, at risk time in people's lives when you're at risk of meningitis and also older people of 65 years older they're at heightened risk of meningitis as well but as I say it can affect anyone at any age and also the rash is something that um, people commonly and rightly associate with meningitis. Um, the glass test was something that we used as, as a lot of our awareness raising messaging um, particularly in the 90s. If you wait for the rash at that stage, it's often a meningitis infection is an advanced stage. And so uh, waiting for the rash is, is, is not helpful. You want to get intervention, medical intervention before then. And there are cases of meningitis where there's no rash at all. So um, it's, it's, not, it's not a definitive sign of a meningitis infection. So yes, those are, those are common um, misconceptions about meningitis. But don't wait for the rash and the fact that it can affect anyone of at any age. Thank you, Mark. And in fact, Abigail, uh, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but Ollie never developed a rash. Yeah, that's correct. It was never one of his symptoms. And so what were what were the symptoms, um, Abigail, that you would encourage others to look out for? Um, I guess some of the symptoms are quite generic, really, um, which makes it really hard for people. Um, but certainly in our case, um, it was a temperature. It was um, a reluctance to have food and um, milk. It was uh, being sick. Um, and fundamentally, it became about him being very sleepy um, and, and a lack of alertness. But um, really, I think it's something that if your child isn't normal to you, you know what your child is normally like. And I think that's the biggest steer by far, is if, it, if something feels wrong to you, then take that seriously and get that investigated. That brings us back to the um, to the one fact that I found striking in the coroner's verdict, which is the emphasis on why would a mum bring a child to hospital at that time of night and parental concern being so important. And I would echo that on the basis of the many claims that we've dealt with at Owen Mitchell involving meningitis. The parents know their children best and um, the fact that they are bringing an ill child to hospital should be given a lot of weight alongside the symptoms. Um, Abigail, Mark, is there one last thing you would like to add before we close today? But I, I've got a couple of questions for Abigail, really, because we, um, as I sort of explained, we, we work with hundreds of families across the UK and many of them, I know, find the prospect of legal support a bit daunting. And I was interested when you were describing kind of a lot of the work that you put into uh, 
your case and I wondered if you know if you had an advantage in in the line of work that you you do but there are people that we work with that would find all that sort of side of things really quite overwhelming lots of writing lots of you know going over processes and things like that um I wondered if you could sort of um describe that and reassure those families that maybe if they're not as um okay with the processes as, as as you are maybe they're not as good at, at writing or um articulating themselves um can you give them some assurance that legal support would still be accessible to them yeah i mean actually i think um in some ways it was a disadvantage that i knew some of uh, the system um because almost you get too into the detail of it but actually fundamentally as the relative of someone who you are pursuing the legal case on behalf of um, you know your story better than the lawyers you know it better than anybody who's going to be on the inquest stand um, and you just have to come back to the facts of the case that you witnessed and you were part of and that's what drove us really um, yes I did spend some time writing all of that down and um, going through the detail of some of the witness statements and kind of thinking that you know it was a different recollection to the one that I had um, but anybody can do that uh, you don't need to be um, you don't need to be hugely kind of you know a trained manager or anything like that you just need to know that fundamentally you realise something went wrong with the care of your relative and uh, this is your opportunity to right that wrong. And um, I think if that's your driving force, then then please don't be afraid of pursuing a legal claim because actually ultimately you doing that is um, not only potentially per going to help you personally particularly will help other families who are going through similar situations or may go through similar situations in the future um it, it's it's the thing that we can do to help others um and actually there is something quite cathartic about going through that that process as well there was definitely a benefit that that we did get out of that as parents that's really helpful. Thank you very much. Um, Abigail, did you want to add anything at all before we close? Just to reiterate, you know, if there's anybody out there listening who this rings back to them at any point, if their child or family member becomes ill, if you are not happy with the advice that you have got from a professional, please go back and ask for a second opinion. Please go back and um, seek the assurance that you need. Um, it is worth doing and even if you go back and ask three times um, and the answer is still the same um, but ultimately your family member goes right don't feel like you're wasting people's time if you have a gut instinct that something is wrong it's the right thing to do is to pursue that absolutely um, and then one final thing from me uh, would be to say that if anyone listening to this podcast has been affected by this disease uh, meningitis now really do understand how tough life after meningitis can be for the person or family affected and um, so I would encourage people to contact the charity for any support that they might need um, and that support just to um, reiterate is completely free of charge as well. Yeah I was going to say we, we offer all of our services completely for free. Um, do check out the Meningitis Now website 
meningitisnow.org. And we have a free phone nurse-led helpline as well that you can call uh, and you can speak to a, a trained nurse who can talk you through the various uh, vaccines and information. But of course, um, speak to a GP if you have any, any issues as well. Brilliant. Well, I'd like to say a huge thank you to Abigail for taking part today and for being so open and honest about your and Ollie's journey um, and for sharing with us an incredibly difficult story. Um, I would also like to thank Mark for joining us and for providing more information about meningitis now uh, and in the incredible work that the charity does. Thanks very much. Thanks, Anya. Um, that's it for today. We hope that you, our listeners, found this podcast insightful. Um, if you'd like to find out more about how we support our clients, then please visit our website at erwinmitchell.com. Um, Mark's already given you the directions to Meningitis Now website, but if you'd like to learn more about the incredible work that the charity does or have questions about meningitis, please, please do contact them. And thanks for listening to the Erwin Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then join us for our next episode. Stay safe.